2: Welcome to Nothing Impossible on News Radio
3: 1120 KMOX. Welcome in Michael Calhoun and Travis
4: Sheridan and uh, we have been out at Venture Cafe and we decided to pull in the executive director. We have Tyler Matthews, executive director of Venture Cafe.
3: Thanks for joining us, Tyler, and we've got the executive director of Venture Cafe Global here as well. We can't not mention that, right? It's technically president, but Yeah, it's close enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right, so we're here, we're going to talk coming up on the show with a couple of, well, one startup that's here as part of the Bayer event, and then also somebody from Bayer as well, and Tyler, talk about these next events that Venture Cafe has been putting on. So many people in St. Louis know about our big companies, you know, they're proud that Bayer, Express Scripts, all these companies are based here, but they don't necessarily know what goes on on the inside, or what the latest technologies are, you know, that MasterCard is developing the latest payment technology here. Talk about these next events and bridging this gap, this knowledge gap that St. Louisans might have.
5: Yeah, so that's exactly uh, a large part of the premise there, is that this is an opportunity to uh, showcase all of the cool things that are happening in St. Louis that a lot of times St. Louisans aren't even aware of. So, um, I mean... Bear is a, is a huge company, and they're working on a lot of really cool things. And oftentimes, we just don't hear about them. Uh, and so, we can see a sampling of different things. This is not an opportunity to have brochures behind a table. Uh, this is not that. It's, it's meant to be interactive. And uh, you know, for instance, we've got farm-to-table, honey-infused cocktails down to the uh, the Mars. Um, farm startup guys that are here, and then um, also just some of the cool technology that Bayer is working on uh, to demo and try, like the seed chipper and things like that. So. Uh, really cool cutting-edge things that you would otherwise not get a chance to see. And you also get this interface with some of the executive and leadership team that's here. So if you're a startup trying to break into that market, you've got direct access tonight.
3: Yeah, if you've seen Martian, you'll want to hear the interview with Mars Farm coming up. That's fun.
4: <laughs> and and Tyler, you said you, know, you have these large corporates. You have the startup community. Uh, how often or in what way do you see the corporates and the startups interacting in a meaningful way?
5: Yeah, so I mean... Outside of Venture Cafe, it's, it's difficult, right? I mean, everyone's everyone's busy, and uh, and they're getting hit up a lot, especially now that the entrepreneur scene has grown so much. There's a lot more activity, a lot more people trying to get coffee with you. This is a great opportunity to bridge that gap. And so uh, corporates want to talk to talent and, and some of the bright minds that are doing great things on the ground floor here, and the startups want to talk to them too. And so this is a way for us to, in a casual environment, allow for that and to see what kind of serendipitous collisions will come out of that. Um, and we've already seen a couple uh, interesting things happen tonight. And, uh, for instance, we had a, a feedback session with some of the leadership and, and venture team of Bayer and with Yield Lab, and they got a chance to speak directly into some of these very new startups uh, and help guide them a little bit on on what they need to do to be ready when they do make the big ask for money.
3: Well, this is cool stuff because we've heard from uh, very important people in the startup community about how St. Louis is at the, the vanguard of ag tech that this could be the heart for the the country of the world for agriculture technology.
5: Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, with the work that's happening at the Danforth Center, uh, which we're out there once a month uh, on the third Tuesday, kind of doing the same thing that we've, we've been doing in Cortex. It's uh, it's helping build community and allowing opportunities for people to uh, meet other people in the space and hopefully collaborate or find a new co-founder um, or you know even get a job. So.
4: So. Uh so people that haven't come to a Thursday gathering, you know, we're, uh, this is very much, this is where baseball towns might be a little inside baseball. So how do we take, how do we normalize this? What, what happens at a Thursday gathering? Why should people even check this out? What makes this unique, I guess, and with, with the real value is that this
5: is not a networking event. This is not an event you come in a suit and tie and you hand out business cards. and It's meant to be transactional. It, it's very much the opposite of that, and it's intentional. And it looks like a lot of fun, and that's because it is, and that's because that's how business usually starts. It's it's personal. It's built on trust. And uh, and you know, it doesn't help uh, hurt to have a drink with somebody, and then you know, you kind of loosen up, and you decide, hey, you know what? I really like what you're working on. How you know? How can I help? And. Uh, that's really what it's more built on is, is a sense of community. Entrepreneurship is hard. And so we want to provide a, a safe place for people to, one, share their crazy ideas, right, um, that they wouldn't do in a formal environment. And then, two, find people that are in the same position and say, what can we do? Can I introduce you to someone? Here's how I got through that stage. And that's that's really the focus of this is helping get these entrepreneurs from zero to one and and one to the next level, too, so they can scale up.
3: And Travis, what is it about Venture Cafe, and especially the demonstration that we've seen in St. Louis at the St. Louis iteration, that has caused you to be getting on a plane? It seems like every other week to cross the globe. And I have a follow-up question: What's your Sky Miles balance at this point?
4: Well, I, I'm not on. I'm on a American. I'm on AA Advantage balance. Yeah. Uh, it's currently sitting at about three hundred thousand, uh, which could take me a lot of places. Have
3: you seen the movie Up in the Air?
4: I have, and I am. I actually am that George Clooney character now. The most where I think about it the most is when I'm in the security line, and there's like a novice f- traveler in front of me. I'm like, "Come on, you pack too much. Take your shoes off." Uh, but I, I think what, uh, what I really see in other markets. Uh, I just got back from Denver. I spent some time in Phoenix. These are. Uh, I'm, I'm headed to. We're launching in Warsaw, Poland, and and Bilbao, Spain, soon. These are all emerging tech ecosystems, and what's so great about what we see even in St. Louis is that you know tech is no longer and innovation is no longer relegated to San Francisco or Boston that it's happening a number of different places and uh what's really cool is a lot of these cities that I go visit actually come to St. Louis to kick the tires and see what's happening not just with uh, with St. Louis but with, within Cortex they go down and visit T-Rex uh, they like what's happening with our geospatial uh, more and more of these cities are finding their niche thing and building innovation around that so just as we have built innovation in St. Louis around ag and health tech and biotech and now geospatial uh, other places are doing it around mobility or clean energy and I think that that's where the trend is really going. You can't be everything to everybody. And so when you're a foreign startup and you want to expand into the United States, you're not just thinking Boston or St. Louis, or Boston or San Francisco, you're saying, where is the best place for my business? And that could be Denver, or it could be San
3: Francisco, or it could be St. Louis. Well, thank you for joining us, Tyler, for this introductory segment. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, we're going to venture downstairs into the next Adventure Cafe event and check out some of the cool startups and scientists who are down there today.
4: We're going to talk about growing food on Mars. Stick around. We'll be right back on Nothing Impossible.
3: Now, back to Nothing Impossible on Kangam OX. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on location at Venture Cafe St. Louis. Michael. And Travis. And uh, it's a good buzz around here at Venture Cafe. Uh, Bayer is sponsoring
4: doing a next event, and they have uh, some of their technology out here and some entrepreneurs out here. And we're here with Peter Webb, who I understand might have made a serendipitous collision at Venture
0: Cafe that my, that got us to Mars Farm. Is that right, Peter? Yeah. So I actually live Live uh, in the neighborhood, and I've been coming to Venture Cafe for about two years now. A number of connections made here, both you know, directly relevant and sometimes irrelevant for a while until it comes yeah. back around. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Uh, and, and so, tell tell us about Mars Farm. Yeah, so Mars Farm, we build uh, controlled environment growth chambers, which pretty much just means a two foot by two foot by two foot cube that has lights and it controls the temperature and the humidity to grow plants. So what we do is we enable science teachers to bring plants into their classrooms and collect data and have a a level of control that they're actually able to do experimentation with their students. So it's similar to like a greenhouse or a community garden, but we add that second layer of control and curriculum to really make this tie back to the standards they have to adhere to.
3: How did you get interested in this? How did Mars Farm become a thing? And I guess this goes back to the, the collision you encountered here at Venture Cafe. Yeah, so I actually, uh, Mars Farm began as an open
0: source project. And uh, if you've heard of Tech Shop, which was a maker space in the area, I actually was entrepreneur in residence there and uh, had met Christine, who, helps organize these events here at Venture Cafe. So through Venture Cafe we met uh, one of our, right now it's about to be an investor, Um, and then also it's where I met two of our current employees. So I can't say there's just one connection that's been big, there really have been quite a few. So uh, I like this idea of a controlled
4: environment. Talk a little bit more about how teachers are using this in the classroom to enhance their STEM education.
0: Yeah, so really schools across the board, um, and and we're focused on high school, but we see this in K through 12. They're really trying to bring two things into the classroom. One is hands-on learning, and the second is real world problems. So they wanna really focus the students on the why. So we introduced the problem of how do we grow plants on Mars? And this is a really lofty, wide goal, but what it does is it causes the students to begin thinking about all the things you usually take for granted, like what does a seed actually need to grow? What does the temperature need to be? How much CO2 does it need? All of these are different variables that they learn about and are then able to control and see the results of in real time. The last part of it is they're able to save these as climate recipes and share them with other schools. So they can all work on growing the fastest, most efficient, most nutritious bok choy, uh, and then we can, long term, share that data with NASA, who uses this on the ISS to replicate these experiments.
4: So it's—I uh, bet Matt Damon wishes he had one on Mars, where he wasn't eating those potatoes the entire time, right? Is that the same sort of concept? Like, how do you—how do it you? Seems qu- like this is a smaller version of what he concocted yeah, there—a yeah, very small version—and bok choy. So. Uh, I mean, our stu- I mean, I'd imagine this is a great way to get students not only thinking about outer space and space exploration, but just food
0: sustainability in general. Yeah, and, and you know, rather than focusing on the, the problems that face agriculture, which can be, frankly, really daunting, uh, we like to focus on you know, goals that are less controversial and really more inspiring. So that's why by focusing on the Mars use case, we're still able to introduce the problem of how do we grow more using less. And that has absolutely real world application when you think that by 2050, we're gonna have 10 billion people and have to figure out how to grow 70% more food. So we're excited to be here in St. Louis where there's such a strong, uh, really talent, pipeline, uh, as well as the existing large companies
3: here who have such a wealth of expertise in plant science. We've seen big problems thrown out to groups of scientists or computers marshaled together to crunch big problems, but to crowdsource this out to schools and students, um, what kind of information has already been passed along to NASA? Any, Any questions that these kids have thought of that maybe the scientists didn't even come across or think of?
0: Yeah. So I mentioned the open source project earlier. Uh, What what that really means is that we released the designs for how to build a simpler version of our kit online. And uh, about 200 schools built those kits and then provided us back the data. Um, So because they grew so many different types of plants and had all these instances of climate, they were able to actually work a lot quicker than NASA ever would have been able to with their, say, four controlled environment growth chambers. So by crowdsourcing that data collection, actually bok choy itself was identified as one of the highest ratios of edible biomass meaning the part you get to eat to non-edible meaning the amount of roots and so now what they're working on is optimizing the nutrients and understanding what's the best combination of nutrients to get once again that largest concentration of nutritious biomass. So, Peter what is your background how did you get into this yeah my background is actually uh, in business what really brought me into this was trying to grow plants uh, indoors and I got into this really in fall and then tried to bring some plants in Uh, realized they were stretching out and they didn't have enough light and you know a couple thousand Google searches later I uh, had had built a number of IKEA boxes with LEDs in them and it that was four years ago and and Somewhere along the way, uh, my father, who has his background, was a data architect from Monsanto. Uh, he got really involved in, with me and working on the data collection side. So this was sort of my outlet to learn about technology, automation, um, and everything that now makes the Mars farm work. And, and see, people wonder why IKEA is in the innovation district. This is exactly why, right? <laughs> you, should, you should see IKEA's boxes for growing your own leafy greens in your closet. Really? Oh, hydroponics is something that they're offering now. I think, right, at That's IKEA? Absolutely, absolutely, it is. They. Uh, It's really taken off in Europe already, Um, but I've talked to people there and they they absolutely believe that there will be a room of your house that's like the, the closet for a greenhouse pretty much.
4: What I, what I like about this whole concept is, uh, I think oftentimes people question, why do we need to do space exploration? Like, what's out there when we have so many challenges here? But uh, but Peter, what you're saying is, some of the challenges that are here are so daunting, and we may be, we may be bogged down and not inspired, but space is still a very inspirational place with very localized
0: solutions. And Absolutely. When you look at the history of space travel, you'll see that in the 60s and 70s, there were twice as many scientists ever year that came out or, or students who came out of high school pursuing careers in science than there are now. And the reason for that, there's a direct correlation to the Apollo missions and many studies have been done on what inspired those scientists to pursue their careers and it's it's incredible the impact that can be had for in a global way um, when you start talking about really big international problems and solutions like space travel, so I I think it's one of the most unique examples of where we as a race can focus on the same thing um,
3: without getting bogged down in in a lot of the politics. And you're getting uh, people excited at the right age, at a really young age, by getting into schools with Mars Farm. Yeah, and it's,
0: it's been amazing how much that group is receptive to the whole idea of, you know, LEDs growing their plants indoors. Uh, they ask me questions like, can I grow a Cheeto in here? <laughs> I don't even know where to start answering that one. But what it tells me is that they have no idea where their food comes from. And you know, that, that's a, if we can just help them understand a little bit about that, then to me it's a success. Uh, if they go
3: on and pursue a career in plant science, that's that's great too. <laughs> From a business side, do the schools purchase the kits? Uh, do you partner with NASA financially for this information? And uh, is the exit plan Elon Musk realizing <laughs> yeah. I got to have Mars Farm? Yeah, when I when I move to Mars. <laughs> yes
0: so uh, <laughs> yes 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 yeah. um, we right now uh, sell the kits to schools uh, our price points 899 which is twice of what we want it to be um, but we're really trying to put you know small batches out right now um, so we have a lot of Investments around small rapid prototyping batches um, to where we can crank out 50 of these and put that into a district, learn from that before we go and develop what we want to build at a rate of more like 5 to 10,000. That's when we'll be able to be a lot cheaper and frankly get into more of the K through 8 uh, and have a lot more instances of this in low-income schools as well. So we, we're working on an NSF grant as well that would directly relate to NASA. Um, and we're also longer term trying to work with some of the big agricultural institutions, not only as a pipeline to take you know, what a, a student who's interested in robotics and make them understand that the first automated vehicle was a tractor, not a car. There are careers in ag as a STEM, uh, you know, if you're someone who's interested in STEM, you can go into ag for sure. But I don't think a lot of kids think about that because they have this idea of farming as something that's old-fashioned and it's uh, overalls and a straw hat. When in reality, there's a lot more lab coats in farming than you'd think. Yeah, I, did, I
4: commissioned a study uh, when I was out in California and we saw that in a 10-year period, number of jobs decreased in ag, but average rate of pay increased, and because of a lot of it was engineering and automation. Uh, before we wrap up, what I really like, what, what's really cool about this is, you mentioned the 60s and 70s, and uh, I'm not, none of us are old enough to remember JFK saying that they're gonna put a man on the moon. Uh, but now, you know, moon is close, Mars is further away. It's not just about landing a person there. Peter, in your opinion, is it about cultivating and putting crops,
0: growing crops on another planet? Yeah, when you talk to the real futurist thinkers, um, the goal is not just to get to Mars and have it be like a crappy place to live. It's really planetary engineering, where you're, you're thinking about how do you increase the temperature there? How do you make that climate something that is actually attractive to live on the entire planet? So, you know, without getting too in depth here, I'll answer by saying there's absolutely a need, both in terms of environmental life support systems to produce oxygen in addition to food, so there's justification for plants there and the second piece of this is that there's a psychological play Uh, you know having no plants around for months at a time is not something any of us are accustomed to and already there's been many studies on the effects of plants and, and ag in general being brought into workplaces um, and I think you know, long term we need to bring a bit of our planet with us just to stay sane. So that's sort of the value add on the side but at a fundamental level I absolutely think it's about creating a planet that's not only tolerable in a place where we can do science but somewhere that's actually enjoyable
3: um, and really becomes a jumping off point from there. Peter Webb from Mars Farm. Where can people go to get more information on the product, especially if they're an educator and they're like, i got to get this in my classroom? Absolutely. So you can follow us on social media at GetMarsFarm.
0: We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Instagram, all all those. And then on our website, it's www.marsfarm.io. All right, Peter Webb, Mars Farm. We're going to be uh,
3: having a hometown buffet on Mars. Can't wait. We'll wander around and check out some of the other technologies on display here at Venture Cafe. We'll be back right after this. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX.
4: Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Travis and Michael out on location at the 4240 building in uh, Cortex at the Venture Cafe. Uh, It's a buzz because
3: Bayer is filling the house tonight. Yeah, it's really packed. We just heard this awesome story about how they're going to grow all the food we need on Mars in the future. Now we're going to hear about gene
1: editing right here on Earth. And if you edit it, will you eat it? Is that right, Annie? Yes, that is right, yes. Thanks for having me. I'm Annie Saltericos. I'm the biotech transformation lead at Bayer, and I'm happy to be here at 4240 today and talking with you guys about gene editing.
4: So tell us a little about this. I imagine there's some psychological barriers that the general public has about editing food, and you're going to give a talk uh, later tonight at Venture Cafe, but for our listeners, what are some of those barriers, and how can we remove them?
1: Yeah, so really consumer-based acceptance is really going to be critical about any technology, not just gene editing. So that's really something that's very important to Bayer and, and really across um, both researchers in academia and industry all together. And as you know, a big uh, company imperative for, for both Bayer and for the world is r- about producing more food using less resources, more sustainably. And so gene editing, we feel, is a tool that can help with plant breeding approaches to achieve these goals. But it's just one tool you're seeing here at Uh, 4240 today it's one kind of tool that we're using but it's also part of a global system that we're thinking about in order to to be able to um, produce more with less.
3: Annie how do you just to start with the basics how do you describe what gene editing is to begin with?
1: Sure so what gene editing is is really about as we understand DNA and we understand the genetic components that um, make proteins and actually produce the traits just like in human beings your eye color your hair color plants have traits traits, too. So they have traits like the size of the plant, um, if it's resistant to disease, or other things if it can use water with not a lot of water available. And so those are the types of traits. Gene editing is a plant breeding technology in which you can go into the plant's DNA and make a small, precise change to that DNA that can either enable a favorable characteristic such as disease resistance or or drought tolerance, or deactivate an unfavorable characteristic. Again, a, a, a manipulation of that plant's own DNA and that will make the plant you know able to grow with less water, able to be resistant to disease and other applications like that.
4: And, and so if you do that gene editing, does that then change the future of that plant going forward? Does its offspring have this have this trait that's been edited as well?
1: Um, So yes, so um, think of it like, um, DNA is like a blueprint, if you think of it that way. And so like a plant scientist or scientists are like architects of that blueprint. And you can make a precise change to that. And I'm going to talk about that later today. But if you, let's say you have a plant that doesn't use water very efficiently, maybe it's like having a table in your kitchen. You could make a small precise change and change that table into a breakfast bar. But at the end of the day, that plant might use water more effectively, and it'll carry that through the next generation. But that plant is still a plant, it just maybe has, in this analogy, in the house analogy, it might have a table in the kitchen or now a breakfast bar where before it had a table in the kitchen. So that's kind of how we think about it. Again, that plant is still a plant with that small, precise change. I was going to ask,
3: what are some of the biggest or most useful changes that have been made? You mentioned drought tolerance, uh, maybe pest resistance. What are some of the biggest, the most useful changes that have uh, come out, especially of Monsanto Bayer?
1: Yeah, so we're really in early days at Bayer, uh, looking at what this technology can do. So those are potential applications. I'm going to talk a little bit more at my talk later tonight about um, some potential applications are, um, there was a a study that was done in collaboration with the Institute of Sustainable Agriculture in Cordoba, Spain, along with the University of Minnesota. And what they did is the alpha-giadins basically are proteins in the plant that produce gluten. And so that gluten, you may know some people have gluten sensitivities. They were able to use this technology to knock down expression of those proteins, which is a large protein family, and actually produce something that has lower gluten. So that's one just potential example. That's not a product per se, but it shows kind of the power of those types of applications. Really to improve human health is is something that could be an application.
4: Annie, what's your background? How did you get into this line of work?
1: Sure, Um, so my background is, I have a master's in plant pathology and a PhD in plant breeding and plant genetics. And so I actually grew up in Wisconsin. And so even though I didn't grow up on a farm, kind of farming was all around me. And America's Dairyland, that's kind of the tagline of the state. And so I really became interested in um, understanding how plants that are sessile, plants can't get up and walk away if they experience a stress, you know, so they're- They can't walk
4: to that puddle of water that they need to go to, right? right? Yeah.
1: So I became really interested in. And how you can change the structure of a gene in order to re, um, come up with a characteristic that makes it again disease resistant or able to grow under conditions that don't have a lot of water. So, really, that plant breeding background, I just think plants are fascinating. They can do so much for us, for society, and for the planet.
4: What I, what I what I think is important about events like tonight and, and getting the startup community and the innovation community connected to companies like Bayer and the work that you're doing is it does help increase the collective intelligence of the community, right? Understanding that uh, our plants come from somewhere, uh, that we have a lot of people to feed, uh, that the world's climate is changing year over year, and our plants have to change along with that. What are some of the misconceptions about uh, gene editing as it relates to plants that you hope people will understand or maybe myths that you want to debunk.
1: Yeah, so thanks. So I I want people to understand or take away from the talk today just what is gene editing? I think that's a question that gets asked a lot, not just for plants, but also for medical applications or for ability to help with with medical um, applications. And so the other thing I'd like to talk about is maybe the difference between what's considered a GMO and what gene editing might be, because there's also those types of conversations. And I think it's important to kind of talk about what is the technology. And then last but not least, what I hope everyone walks away with is that it's really important us to have consumer-based acceptance for the type of technologies we can, we can have. And I think with something like gene editing that's in its early days of what this technology can do, we really want to partner with industry, uh, researchers in um, academia, uh, regulatory agencies, but also ultimately the consumer to help be an advocate for technology, really understand what it is, and let's have that thoughtful dialogue and scientific-based discussions to make sure that we all understand and we think about what it can really do for us as a society. Well, and I think
3: the questions that people have, it's evident in the title of the panel you're going to be on. If we edit it, will you eat it? Maybe a question someone might have is, if you make a gene edit, is there a, an unintended consequence? You think you're, you're changing this for the positive, but there may be something else uh, you don't know you're changing.
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So again, we look at gene editing as a tool of plant breeding, and plant breeding has one of the most uh, successful safety track records in all of existence. So all of today's crops, I shouldn't say all, but the majority of today's crops have really been a result of plant breeding, and we look at gene editing as an extension of that.
4: You know, I I think about what humans choose to eat, right? Like, somebody had to eat the first egg. They're like, hey, that chicken just laid that. I'm going to eat it, right? Somebody... As 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 a, I mean again, I'm not a scientist, but I don't know any other species that drinks the milk of another species, especially drinking milk post weaning period. Like humans are really weird with what we eat, but I think a lot of this it comes down to consumer acceptance, as you were saying. Uh, sometimes a good marketing campaign helps. We do it for cattle, we do it for cheese, we do it. for I'm sure Popeye was the was one of the, the biggest lobbyists for spinach sometime back in the day. I think talks like this and the ability to you know, just increase people's I don't just want to call it the intelligence but there's this the consumer advocacy and consumers buying into the fact that we need to feed the planet period right yep. yeah
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. That's really what's driving all of what we do, not only at Bayer, but basically across all of agriculture. We really are trying to produce more with less, and this is just one of the technologies, one of the tools. As you're seeing today at Next, um, it's really just part of that overall initiative to produce more using less resources.
3: Annie, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, both of you. So enjoy.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We're here at the Bayer Crop Science Next event inside of Venture Cafe.
4: And uh, there's a lot of buzz. We're going to talk to more people. Stick around. We'll be right back.
3: Now, back to Nothing Impossible on Kangam OX. Let's go inside a new style of grocery store. It's Fields Foods in downtown West with owner Chris Goodson.
2: Come on in. Here's the front door. You'll come in right off of Washington Avenue, right into the produce section. And yes, everything at our other grocery store, any normal grocery stores here, we've just packed it all in to make it really look like a true urban grocer. It's something straight out of Chicago or lower Manhattan or some European city. And uh, the aisles are tight, which people love that intimacy and, and they really love this kind of urban feel. So it's very exciting.
3: You mentioned just walking through the door off of Washington Avenue. You also mentioned before we hit record about how it felt smaller before you put all the stuff in here. It's only 15,000 square feet. I say only, but I mean, I see produce, I see frozen, I see all the departments you'd find at a regular grocery store.
2: You're absolutely right. When we were in here, it was an open space and you kind of always wonder how it's going to lay out. But we've been able to put all of our departments in perfectly, even around these huge columns. So as I mentioned, we walked in off Washington Avenue. So what's old is new again. This used to be the, uh, largest hat factory in the country at the time when this building was was uh, built so there was need for hats obviously then now there's need for groceries and we've taken that old space that showroom space and turned it into a grocer right below uh, apartments up above us so it's really neat it's almost a shop in your pajamas type theme you can come down and i'll walk you through here you can come down the uh, elevator from the residence right down to the uh, back of the grocery and swipe your card and come right in so it's a great model and on a day like today where it's a little bit dreary and rainy you don't even need to go outside you're right everything you need right here in the store from your apartment
3: and if you're going to live downtown whether you're in this building or the one across the street or the one a block down you don't want to carry a carload of groceries back so maybe do you think people will frequent this store two, three, four times a week if they live nearby, as opposed to if you live in a car-centric suburb, you might go grocery shopping once every one or two weeks and just stock up the whole
2: car. So Michael, you hit it right on the head in the old days when mom and dad would go to the A&P, it was on a Saturday, and load up. The natural tendency now is to shop the three to four to five times a week, hence the heavy uh, load on the prepared foods and the, the wine and the craft beer and the fresh produce. And you're right, Again, in the old days, grocery retail looked at a mile or a two mile or a three mile radius. We're looking at a one block, two block, three block radius. And really, that's kind of exciting because that's what a city is supposed to be, especially the downtown part, should be dense like that, right? Where you have retail every three or four blocks. And so, not only do we have the residents right above us here that are a great customer base, we also have many developments right around this area, and we've got the shopping bags, and we've got backpacks that we'll be uh providing so people have that and and the little wheelie carts will be coming at some point too so it's really gonna look like you know michigan avenue or soho or something really cool or i should say soho and chicago will be looking like downtown st louis well you go to dc and people
3: are walking to their homes from the corner safeway with those big carts i mean it's just a part
2: of living in a downtown city kind of an environment absolutely and i you know this is kind of uh my dreamy uh, side of me, I've been a city resident my whole life, it's going to be neat as an out-of-town tourist or a conventioneer to see people with their groceries on the sidewalk because that's going to show that there's life here, that it's not the vacant street. You know, It's not that we, you know I'm not naive, well, obviously public safety is always an issue, but this is a very safe place down here. And when you see people on the sidewalks and you see life, that's what generates the momentum, that's what generates the activity, that's what generates the excitement. So I'm happy to be a part of that.
3: Talk about the business case for this and why we haven't necessarily seen the big national chains embrace, you know, there's no Walgreens downtown, for instance. And yet it's the local entrepreneurs like Chris Goodson who are stepping in, opening Fields Foods and showing, I guess, that there is a market even if the big national companies don't take a look.
2: Well, it's kind of you to say that, but, but you're exactly right. Really it is a multi-step process. Well, uh, step one is you got to have the risk takers, right? The people that want to live in some cool areas and and those are risk takers whether it be Lafayette Square, The Grove, Shaw, you name it. The second step is the mom and pop shops and I consider myself a mom and pop shop or the entrepreneurs that want to take that chance. They can't come in because they see an opportunity and a demand that needs to be filled. Then step three is that wave, right? The risk takers tell their friends, come on in, the water's warm and now they come down. Then you'll see step four, you'll see those targets the mini targets. You'll see the Walgreens come, but you got to build that. And we're not naive. You know, that's the step in the process. Risk takers, mom and pop shops, the next wave of group, and then you'll see that major retail come.
3: Where does Fields Foods fit into, uh, which lane in the grocery industry, I guess? It seems like you've got the, the Deerbergs, the Whole Foods, you've got the Schnooks and the former Shop and Saves and, the, you know, maybe Walmarts and Targets. And you've got Ruler Foods and Aldi and Save a Lot. I guess three brackets there where would you say that Fields Foods fits in? For folks who are wondering about the price, about the selection, and about the service, where do you fit into those lanes?
2: Sure, so first of all, those are all great retailers and grocers, and we're lucky to have all that. I think, obviously, like any business guy is gonna say, I'm a little bit different unique. It's what I call a third, a third, a third. We kind of have a third healthy, organic product. That's kind of the craze with the Millennial Group, and the the empty nesters. We have a third very uh, local product, almost 150 vendors providing product here, which is kind of cool. And then, given that we're not Oregon or Northern California, you can still get your traditional toasted Ravs, your Diet Coke, and your Ted Drews. So I think it's a little mix of that, plus I sprinkle it with fun. You can drink while you shop. We have wine tasting and beer tasting, and that's a really neat concept, and I think that works. Now, I'm also downsizing it, as you see, to about 16,000 square feet, so that's a great model to be able to Uh, 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 contribute to the to the three to four block radius that we talked about so
3: yeah I'm looking at a shopping cart and is that a cup holder I see what might I have in a cup that I might put in that cup holder Chris you
2: you have a keen eye there Michael that is a cup that specifically you can put those little small rounded wine glasses or beer glasses in there of course you can put coffee or Diet Coke if you'd like but it'd be great to have beer and the wine so that fits that and people can go to our wine bar taste have a little glass of Chardonnay while they shop, and make it a unique and fun experience, because that's what we want. Again, back to what we talked about originally, you're here three to four to five times a week. We want to make that a nice experience.
3: And in terms of the location, downtown West, some people who aren't familiar with the area might say, well, isn't Culinaria downtown? But this is kind of a half of downtown that hasn't had a walkable grocery store, I feel like.
2: You're absolutely right. Culinary is a great store, and they've done a great job pushing the envelope down on 7th Street. We're on 18th Street. So again, back to that three, four block model, 718, we're still far apart. I think it's a really good sign that shows that the city's on the comeback when you can have multiple retailers in a downtown area that service that multi-block area. What
3: locations are on the way? We know about Central West End and we know about Dogtown. And are those both under construction at this point?
2: They are and uh, so Del Mar and Euclid should be coming online here very shortly in the next month or so. And I'm very, and again, you'll see a trend here. Same concept, 100 plus units above, Fields Foods on the bottom floor, elevator that takes you right down. Very proud of that one in a special way because we're right on Del Mar and we can kind of crack that Del Mar divide. So I can have a customer base that I can count on within the building but then take that risk and reach out to the neighborhoods that have been under And I'm not speaking like I'm some do-gooder, I think there's an opportunity to take those neighborhoods and see them come back with having a risk taker like me in that neighborhood. Then the next one is Dogtown, which has been a blighted, vacant lumber yard for many years right next to Seamus McDaniels. Again, the same concept, 100 plus units above, fields on the bottom floor, reaching out to the neighborhood around it, and becoming a real integral part of that. The other thing, lastly, I'd like to say is that when that store is online, we'll have roughly about 200 employees. Now, I know that's not a huge number, a little bit of a blimp, but it, what, what's really important is almost 80% of them are from the city of St. Louis and the surrounding neighborhoods. So they take great pride in seeing their store as their store and having a chance for a job and employment because labor is just, is, is there's three components. You need a crazy entrepreneur, you need investment capital, capital and you need labor, all equal. Just talked with another Self-described crazy entrepreneur down the street at Fried, the new
3: restaurant that opened. He talks about hiring people who live in the neighborhoods, loves seeing them walk to work.
2: And he talks about that ownership and that pride factor, too. It is. You know, I'm seeing an attitude, especially with the younger people, that St. Louis is a cool place to be. And I spoke to a group a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you know what? We're the best darn city on earth. And I'm sure there's guys and gals from Indianapolis or Cincinnati that feel their town is, too. But I feel ours is. And you should, too. And it's quite refreshing that they don't have that baggage that we've experienced in St. Louis. They're looking at it as, gosh darn, it is a good town. And a lot of my employees are younger. They feel that that enthusiasm, that passion, and they're taking pride. And that's how you bring neighborhoods back. That's how you connect the dots, and that's how we go forward. What's next for Fields? If I
3: remember correctly, the Delmar and Euclid is developed by Cullinan Properties, right? And I think they're doing the Big Slough property at Shoto and Grand as well and they'd like to have a grocery store. Have, have you guys been in conversation about that? Or can you talk about that? Well,
2: it's probably premature, but you're a good sleuth as a reporter there, but uh, no, Cullinan is a great group, and, and I'm interested to see how that development shapes up. I'm very happy that they were selected to work with St. Louis U. That is going to be a key development. You know, they did the streets of St. Charles out there in St. Charles, and if you've been out there, that's a wonderful development that they, they did too. Uh, Pearl Companies is a developer at Dogtown, another great partner. And the Monogram folks here out of Kansas City, another great partner. So what I'm doing is, is partnering, in essence, with these great developments with their residential component. And I become an amenity for them. And obviously, their customers become customers for me. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Michael. Good to see you.
3: That's it for this week. Check out the podcast, and we'll talk with you next week.